Welcome to the Hughes of Leadership podcast, where we dive deep into the many prominent aspects of leadership. How does leadership show up in each of us, and how do we seek to have a positive influence on the lives of others? Just like hues vary, so does how we show up as leaders and how we may flex different hues depending on the moment, the task at hand, or the individual or team we're engaging. What hues are you using today, and which will you seek to further develop? I'm your host, DJ Menifee, Chief Enrollment Officer at Susquehanna University, and also the Chief Impact Officer for Menifee Duarte Consulting Group. And I look forward to diving into the hues of leadership with our guest. As a reminder, season one is focused on people of influence, specifically those that have had a major impact on my leadership lens and philosophy. So it is quite the blessing today to introduce our guest. He has experience in admission and enrollment, emphasizing diversity work through his time in institutions like Ithaca College, the University of Delaware, Cornell University, and Stanford University, and now currently serves as the Associate Vice Chancellor of Enrollment and Dean of Admission for UC Berkeley. Welcome, Femi Ugandele. What's up, boss man? What's going on, man? It's good to see you. It's great to be here with you this morning. Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Well, it's been a long time coming. It's such an honor and a privilege to share this space with you. And I look forward to our audience having a chance to just take in uh, what you have and are willing to share from your lens and your perspective and through your passion. And so for our guests, as a reminder, you know, there's there's a specific reason why the guests have had such an impact on my leadership lens and philosophy. And uh, Femi has impacted my leadership through his intentional approach to how he uses his time. Uh, he always is aligned with his why, and that is internally with his work for the institution that he serves, as well as external to his chosen vocation and how he uses time and service. And so for that, my brother, I thank you uh, and we thank you for for being a model in that way. No, I, I really I really appreciate that. And I, I think that um, one of the things that I've, I've always valued about our profession is that there's many ways to, to go about this and, it's, and the importance of finding the way um, that resonates the most for you, especially recognizing that any type of leadership work, but especially if you're trying to do work that is grounded in any type of diversity or equity, it can be exhausting. And so taking your own approach is going to be really, really important. Amen. You know, as we dive into our conversation, our audience knows that that we've had a chance to connect in preparation for this conversation and, and thinking through what hues you would like to share uh, with the world today. Yeah. And so I'm really excited about our conversation uh, and excited for the audience to hear uh, these hues as we unpack them. And so Without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and, and dive in. Uh, and so we're going to get started with the first hue. Uh, the first hue is code switching to switching the code. And so, Femi, I'm going to turn the keys over to you. Uh, unpack that force in terms of what that means, uh, but also how that shows up in your day to day. Yeah. So I think so I've, I've termed this kind of this phrase of code switching to switch the code, recognizing um, what code switching really has been for marginalized identities and and people of people of color, right? Um, code switching becomes a way in which you can survive in areas or in places that you might need to show up differently than you would at home, right? And so when I when I think about what that means, especially when you think about what it means to be a professional, what it means to be an academic, what it means to be a professional academic, code switching and being in places where the way in which you present and show up. Um, become critically critically important. 
I think that as I've ascended to leadership and I think about code switching to switch the code, um, that really has become the ways in which I've approached diversity, equity, and inclusion, depending on the type of institution that I've worked at. And and so uh, what I'll say is I've also been blessed to have really strong leaders along the way who all let me know that if I wanted to make changes or, or make initiatives or impact at my different institutions, I had to make sure that I was tapped into what is the why of those institutions? What are the things that make them tick? What are those sensibilities? What are the vulnerabilities? And really, where are the opportunities there? And so, uh, as you mentioned, kind of in the opening, I've had a chance to work at a variety of different institutions. My goal has always been the same. And so my goal has always been, how do we create a more diverse and equitable place? But I recognize that the sensitivities at those different institutions have varied. And so, for example, when I was at Ithaca College, net tuition revenue and discount rates for a small private really matter. And, and that that is something that we had to pay attention to. And so if we were going to have a conversation around diversity and equity, we had to make sure that it also made sense on the bottom line. When I got to the highly selectives and the Ivies, right, recognizing the importance of not allowing the conversation of diversity and academic excellence to be separated, um, it was really important for us to, to really, to, for, for me to make that argument in a plain way. I'll also say at, at some of those other institutions, when we talk about things, and I know that these things can be taboo, but they are parts of our field, things like legacy admissions or, or development admissions and those pieces, recognizing that me, me as an individual, I, I'm, I'm not big enough to, to completely shift or change those tactics or those strategies. Uh, again, recognizing that there's, there's oftentimes a bottom line reason why those things exist. But instead, my question was, is how do we diversify and, and think about equity in those lenses, right? And so if we're gonna have any type of preference for legacy admission, for example, my, my question is like, do we recognize what it means for us to have a, a student of color or a black student or a Latino student who might be a legacy um, that's coming from that same institution, right? And so, and, and if so, how are we thinking about what that might mean for us as we're trying to grow these populations at our different schools. And so when I talk about code switching to switch the code, I think it's recognizing that there is no individual single playbook to try to diversify an institution. It is all contextual, it is all grounded in the experiences and again, in the values of those institutions. And you have to understand what, what language or what code they are speaking before you can get in there and start to create some critical thinking and critical changes uh, around the work. And so that's been something that I, that I pride myself on I'm a big believer that you cannot prescribe a solution without diagnosing the problem first, right? And so that 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 diagnosis is really getting steeped in understanding what the language is, not the culture. Those are two different things. Not the culture, right? Because oftentimes if you're trying to do liberating work, you're going against the culture. But it's much more what are the espoused values of an institution and how do you seed um, a, a diversity and an equity agenda? within that language or within those values. Thank you so much for me for, for walking us through your experience, through your lens and um, a few of the threads that, that stood out to me. The first thread is context. Context yeah. matters significantly within, within our, our space, not only in higher education, but I would assume for any organization in any industry. The other piece uh, that could be semi-related is situational analysis. So you uh, have demonstrated what it means as a leader to diagnose 
of the situation. You've got the context, but you're you're trying to truly fill out the situation and the analysis for that particular organization. And obviously, in the places you've been blessed to work at, that situation analysis still needed to take place. But what came out of the analysis is different based on the institution, based on the priorities, based on how they're positioned in the marketplace. And so I appreciate you you highlighting that. The other piece, again, and, and this goes back to the introduction, through all of that, your why still was heavy and was still the priority, was still the foundation. So as you are navigating those various spaces, because the diversity work is so important and critical to your being, you put the energy and the effort towards the context, towards the situation analysis to switch the code so that you can still do the meaningful work. Not only that's meaningful to you, but also that would have an impact on so many of the lives. So that's, man, that's impactful. Yeah. And it's one of those things where, you know, to be honest with you, without doing that, um, you can find yourself in a position where you don't know where the benchmark is. Right. And so, again, because diversity and equity and especially in these highly selective institutions, it is it is a fight that predates me. It is a fight that will outlast me. And so it is it is really important for me to get an understanding of where, where are we right now in this in this fight or in this race. It's a relay race, right? The baton is currently in my hand at this institution. I have to understand what what happened before this um, and run as fast and as hard as I can so that way when I am passing this baton off, there is a new bench, a new a new level set of of what the floor is, and therefore creating a higher ceiling, right? And so so all of that is is really really critical, um, and it also allows us to understand what victory looks like, right? I, I think that if we step into these um, opportunities and we are pushing far beyond the capacity of an institution to change or far beyond the speed, right? We recognize that institutions are willing to change and oftentimes it's the speed in which they change that can be frustrating. But if we're able to understand and contextualize that, you're able to see the victories for what they are, even while you're still actively pursuing a higher experience or a higher outcome, right? That incremental progress is critically, critically important. And I think that without it, the burnout creeps in very, very quickly. And, and and oftentimes you might feel like Sisyphus just pushing a boulder up a mountain just to have that boulder roll back down on you, right? And so, so understanding, and again, diagnosing and benchmarking um, for that institution where they are, what do they espouse in, in regards to where they, where they say that they want to go, and then what is my role in really pushing that forward? And, and one of the things that I, that I like to do is I, I oftentimes like to take a look at best practices across the country. And because I, I, I attended a really small school, I went to Mansfield University of Pennsylvania and, and I got my master's at, at Ithaca College. I am a small school guy, small town guy. And that has also let me know that there are really great ideas that exist in some of the institutions that are less known. And so when I talk about best practices, I don't just mean best practices from our institutional peers. I mean best practices in the field when it comes to equity-driven results and outcomes. That's what I talk about best practices from. And so now that I'm at Berkeley, I've taken practices from Bates College. I've taken practices from, from the Ivies. I've taken practices from some of the other you know, public flagships. Um, but for me, it's all about how do I scale and scope an intervention to work here, especially if the data and, and the experiences already show that it's worked in the past, right? And so uh, I also believe in this urgency in this work right now. The fact is, is that there have been generations 
of people who have been ignored or denied opportunity. And every day or every year that goes by is another generation that's denied. And so when we talk about what's happening on my watch, right, it needs to be known that I'm actively doing my best to address those gaps and those inequities. So I'm gonna catch the baton there. And as you talk about things being on your watch and as you talk about doing mission critical work that are in alignment with your values, you can't do this on an island. Right. Yeah. And so as you're doing that, I'm, I'm, I'm shifting towards hue number two, because as, there, as you're doing this important work, uh, <laughs> you have to identify who who's with me, uh, who needs a little bit more context and information uh, and who might be quite the challenge as we are navigating this work uh, together. And so that second hue is is allies, accomplices and adversaries. And so, yeah. again, I'm going to hand the keys over to you, Femi, and walk us through what that means. Uh, and how you navigate that in your day to day? Yeah, I, allies, accomplices, and adversaries is something that I that I teach to my leadership team um, as well, and that really has to do with understanding what it means for us when we are trying to put initiatives and and things together. Um, if we if we are trying to do dynamic things, oftentimes that means that we are going up against traditions or norms um, that have created the current status quo. And so when every, anytime that you are bringing in new ideas, there's always going to be some version of support um, and some version of resistance. And, and so, so I tell people it's important when we're thinking about, especially doing anything that's big or cross-departmental, to understand who are our allies, who are our adversaries, and who are our accomplices. When I talk about our accomplices, I mean, who is going to roll up their sleeves stay after work or come in on that Saturday or that Sunday and do that work with you, do that analysis with you, who's going to go on the road and create those programs with you. Those are your accomplices, those who um, will actively um, support and even espouse the mission of the intervention. And those people are incredibly important. There's also allies, right? And allies are those folks who might not necessarily be there with you in your construction, but will be there with you when it's time to perform, right? And so when it's time to uh, get the work done or to get a vote, this person might be somebody that's in your voting block, but not, might not necessarily be a part of your actual campaign. And allies are important. And I think that oftentimes we confuse allies and accomplices, and that then puts people in a position where we think that these allies are actually adversaries. Adversaries are those who are actually against what you're what you're doing and what you're proposing. And 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 I think that especially in higher education, rational minds can disagree. There will absolutely be adversaries in some of your work, and and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's just about understanding again what does it mean to negotiate and work with those with with adversaries and how do you preempt whatever you are putting out there with the understanding of what your adversaries might question or ask you about i think the important piece around this concept of allies accomplices and adversaries is recognizing that they change based off of the situation the intervention or the experience and so i don't label an individual as an ally accomplice or adversary Every time I bring something new to the table, I have to assess who are going to be my allies in this, who are going to be my accomplices in this, and who are going to be my adversaries in this, right? And so, and that sometimes could be whether it is, you know, dealing with faculty because I'm going to ask them to come in on a Saturday. Just because I'm asking them to come in on a Saturday doesn't mean that they don't support equity work. 
But in what I'm currently proposing, they might be an adversary in that regard, right? Or it might be it might be working with co- uh, college counselors or, or 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 high school counselors, trying to get them to be not just allies to the work, but are they actively promoting some of the initiatives, the pipeline programs that we have? Those are accomplices, right? They recognize the potential for that intervention and they're actively trying to engage in that, right? And so so I think it it is important to, to understand who those people are. But again, I would go back to those counselors, those same counselors that might be accomplices when it comes to doing a pipeline program might be adversaries when the admissions decisions come out, right? And so that that's the nature of highly selective admissions, right? And so and so I don't box people into a corner. I don't allow a single individual experience um, to dictate whether or not somebody is an ally or an accomplice or an adversary. I do take a look at trends, but again, um, a, a good example of this for, with what I'm doing here at Cal, we've been looking at really trying to democratize um, math and 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 STEM, right? That that's a big thing that we've been doing. There have been faculty that when I first started here, and we were we were diversifying the class and we were getting a lot of a lot of attention for that. And there were faculty that were very um, concerned about the strength and the quality of the students, and they were very outspoken about that. And in those moments, I would definitely feel as though they were adversaries, right? Adversaries to the outcomes and the results that we were producing. As we have been, as I have been studying the math situation in California more. Um, and, and particularly recognizing the lack of preparation for the average student or for a majority of the students versus our curriculum, rather than doing the blame game between myself and faculty to say, well, it's your job to teach and it's my right? Rather than doing that, it is, hey, we have this common issue that we need to solve. So how do we work together to figure something out? And that same faculty member not only became an ally, became an, an, an accomplice in helping me get all of the other faculty from the math departments, the engineering departments, the college of chemistry departments to get around the table. Hey, this person has worked on this summer program. This person has worked on this other summer program. And now we are having these collective meetings to try to solve the problem, right? Because the problem is not my, one of my creation. Um, it's also not one that should just be dumped on faculty's lap, right? And so how do we put all of our combined resources and efforts together to really center this around the student. And I think that that's where really great accomplice-based work can happen. But that also goes back to that first you. I had to understand the code. I had to understand that if I come in here simply just saying, well, it's our job to teach and not recognize this, the importance of a strong academic floor, my ability to bring people to the table would not, would, would not have been there, right? And so, so allies, uh, accomplices, and, and adversaries, I think, are critical. And again, they shift and they change depending on um, both the topic, the intervention, um, or again, where we all might be sitting um, in regards to, a, to an emerging topic or issue. I appreciate the reflection on not holding someone to a particular flag, uh, a flag being uh, an adversary or an accomplice or an ally, uh, but assessing it each time there's a new initiative, there's a new conversation, there's a new decision that needs to be reviewed. Uh, So I appreciate you sharing that, not only with me, I'm taking that home because I have a lot of learning to do in that space, but also for our audience. You know, for me, one of the questions I wanted to to ask and follow up because it's it's a multi-layered piece is separate from identifying one's stance. There's the other element uh, that at times can be the elephant, so to speak, in the room, and that is 
who has the power or the, the influence when you are navigating these things. So uh, are there any pieces of information or examples or advice that you would want to share as you have walked us through some of those examples where we were specific to the ally, the accomplice or the adversary, but also adding in that layer of understanding the power or influence dynamics as well. Yeah, yeah. And and that's really important. And I'm glad that you asked me um, about, about power dynamics, TJ, because I think it is something that we oftentimes gloss over. I think the first is recognizing what is true power versus what is assumed power, right? True power are the people who actively tomorrow could say, you know what, we no longer want Femi at this institution. And so therefore we are going to you know, recommend, you know, dismissal or something like that, right? Um, so so there's there's true power. Then there's perceived power. Perceived power is people that have, that are incredibly important to the institution, but might not necessarily be in your shop or in your, in your um, reporting um, scheme. And oftentimes we give a lot of credence to that, to that power as well, because we believe that, you know, there's an opportunity for somebody to like impact, you know, a, a senior leader or a manager around your work. All of this comes back to one of the things that I've talked about for years, which is owning your expertise, right? I am somebody who actively owns my expertise. And the only reason why I can say that I do that is because I'm constantly studying and learning more about it. The same way that I could say, you know, I know a ton about admissions. I know for a fact that there are faculty here that can solve quantum physics. That does not mean they understand the enrollment funnel. Right. So so it's 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 always about me understanding where my expertise is and like really sticking my foot down on that. And then also recognizing that I am not the chancellor. Right. And so sometimes the best thing that I can do is to inform, give my perspective and then let folks do what they choose to do with that and and, and move forward from there. Right. And so uh, if, if we find ourselves in these positions, especially people of color, if we find ourselves in these positions where we are nervous to speak the truth, then that is an issue. Right. I, I think that I have no problem telling my faculty if I am nervous or concerned about something. And I'll ask, is that a concern of the greater good or not? Sometimes it is. And sometimes it's not. And that's that's absolutely. And I have to be OK with that as well, right? That not, not everything that I, that I, that I believe um, is an issue is a crisis, right? And so there's a bit of humbleness to that um, as, as well, right? And so when, when you do all of that, and again, we, we center the conversation around these experiences that, of, of our students and the, and the population that we, are, that we are aiming to serve, then I think that the power dynamics, while they're still there, it also allows you to give, like share responsibility. Right. And so when I say things going back to the math issue, right, if I say this is the math situation in California, you know, I'm very concerned about what this might do to our ability to admit students from across the state. And and I'll say that and and I'll also say, you know, and we're actively being asked to diversify and to have greater, you know, geographic representation. And so, like, what do we want to do about this? If the math and if the math and science faculty say we we don't want to do anything about it. Well, okay, then, then, then that's that's your prerogative to do so. But when the wave of questions start to come from 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 my audiences, from my parents, from my students, from current students, my 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 response is going to be: I'm going to need you to ask those who are in power. Right? Great power comes great responsibility. So you don't get to hide behind it if you're going to take a stance, and that that's vice versa with me as well. Right? Um, I cannot. 
I cannot talk around how important it is to diversify our student body and then, you know, just do whatever I can to diversify, not paying attention to the academic rigor of this institution. That's irresponsible on my behalf, right? And so, so recognizing that with power does come responsibility, um, I think is important. And then also, again, it, it, I, keep, I hate to keep going back to that code switching to switch the code, but understanding, so you are, are in this position of power, Everybody at an institution is a middle manager. I don't care what anybody says, whether you are the associate director or whether you are the dean of a college, everybody here is a middle manager. We all report or answer to somebody. That includes our chancellor, which means that we all have pressures from above and below, right? So like, how do I, how am I able to tap in to what those pressures might be? I can't solve them all, but I might be able to solve this one over here or help you with this one over there and create mutual benefit and interest convergence around a topic. Right. And so now so now I, it'll be um, it'll be you know one of those times where I will come to an institution. And this actually happened to me when I was at when I was at Delaware. I came to an institution and there was a I was working for a gentleman there who had been there for about 50 years. And he had really pioneered some really amazing initiatives and interventions for student retention, like all across the campus. And by the time I got there, he was he was much older. He kind of came in and I, and I said, you know, we should really try some of these things. And a lot of the things that he was telling me was, you know, we, you know, we tried that a couple of years ago. I don't know if that's gonna work. You know, we tried to sell that like 10 years ago. And, I, and, and, and that becomes an issue because there's this belief that if something, there's, there's plenty of times when there are good ideas and bad timing, right? And just because there are good ideas and bad timing doesn't mean that that idea should be shelved forever, right? And so it, it is important for us all to kind of take a step back. And if you if you hear if you hear a young staff member or a young um, faculty member bringing something to you that either you tried and it failed or something that um, you know uh, you just don't believe is is right at this institution, I think it's important to actually take a step back and and and, and again do a little bit of um, uh, diagnosing, because oftentimes the ingredients for uh, these initiatives are built out of some sort of struggle, strife, or disparate impact or, or experience for students of color, right? And so how do we make sure that we are not kind of snubbing out creativity and, and these other things, right? And so the importance of really letting letting those great ideas emerge are important. And I'll tell you, DJ, my, my greatest thing as I, as I grow in this profession, one of my greatest concerns that Batman uh, saying, which is you can die and be a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain, right? The last thing that I want to do is be so into myself and my own change agent models and these other things that when other people want to bring these things up that I have, I have dismissed those. Right. Because that because that there, there's a, there's a true tendency for that to happen where we become so ingrained in our own missions and, and our own status at our institutions um, that we start to believe that creating interventions or sharing power or, or things like that is somehow a threat to our identity. Um, and that that I think can become a huge, a huge problem. So many blessings in what you just shared and one of the first pieces that that stood out for me is this notion that given our chosen vocation, our work has to be upfront. Our work has to be very public. Yep. Um, there's not a lot of instances where we can hide behind policy or practice or trends. Uh, we have to be out front because of our positionality within the higher ed ecosystem, but also on a micro level, 
the role that we play at our institutions. Um, some may use use language of gatekeeping, but we're we're at the front door, um, engaging and, and attempting to welcome the next generation of bright minds. And so we don't have the ability to hide from those things. The other piece that I appreciate you reflecting on um, is the adage of uh, what comes with power, what comes with influence, and that's even greater responsibility. And so, again, I think sometimes that can be hidden uh, when times get tough, when times get critical, and when those that have the most influence and sometimes the most power, um, let's call it the real uh, power, not perceived power that yeah. you're referring to, right? In that, in those moments, it's it's also trying to recognize the potential impact of those decisions, not yeah. just in the short term, but also the long term impact. You know what is going to happen up or downstream at some point that we're we're not taking into consideration. You know, at this particular point, and then the last piece in terms of uh, you said that the, the Batman quote. I was thinking lyrics. I went. I went a whole different different <laughs> different place in terms of that. I've thought a lot about that in terms of of, of leadership um, and navigating certain scenarios where, you know, it's it's thinking about the mission and the direction that an organization may be going and reflecting on what that may mean if if you inherently feel like it should be going in a different direction or maybe it should be going in the same direction. Uh, but you think the pace should be uh, moving differently. Oftentimes, at least for me, it's expecting a faster uh, more quick and swift pace. And also thinking about how all of the puzzle pieces fit together in terms of an organization, in terms of organizational administration and leadership. Yeah. At times, because of how you move, the timing of when you move and what you value at times can also be at odds with those that you are called to lead with. Yes. And thus, even within the nature of the quote or the lyrics, uh, you can become a, a villain without the intention. <laughs> Of, yeah. of becoming it and 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 thinking through what that may mean in terms of your your longevity in that particular space uh, as an organization, but also thinking through who do you want to do this work with, right. right? And so you know, for our audience, as you are thinking about uh, while while our topic hasn't been specific to upward mobility or looking at new opportunities, as you are thinking through that, it's also being very thoughtful in well, who am I going to report to? Who are they? What are they, what are their values uh, to Femi's point earlier and what pressures are they navigating against? Uh, who would I be working alongside? Who am I going to be arm in arm with? Um, and, and it is OK to disagree respectfully. Right. But who am I going to be going to, quote unquote, battle with on a day to day basis? And is that who I want to go and battle with, given what I value, given what my mission is, given what I want the organization's mission to be? So. I just, I just appreciate you. You bringing so many yeah. to life. And you know, to that, to that point, DJ, I think that one of the things that is really important, and and this is something that I've been talking to a lot of folks about. You know, I've done some of the NACAC GWI faculty stuff. I know you've done a lot of that stuff as well in the past. And um, what that does is it allows you to stay in touch with people that are navigating the, the the field as they're, you know, they're rising, which is great to see. And one of the things that I think is really different about when you step into these leadership roles, and, and especially if you're talking about directors or VP roles, is the importance of the, the approach in the, in the interview process has to shift. Right. And what I mean by that is when you are applying for an assistant director position or a senior assistant director position, you are trying to get the organization to understand, like, I can do this job. 
right? So let me tell you all of the ways that like I can do this for you and 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 why you all um, need me. I think when it comes to the director positions and the VP positions, it is critically important to step into those interviews to say, this is who I am. This is who I am. This is what my approach is going to be. This is where I see opportunities. This is where I see threats to your work or to your organization. And also interview them to see how they feel about that. Because once you get into these roles, right, it's exactly what you just said. If 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 I tried to fit into the hole, right, by the time I got here, I don't know how much of me they would they would actually want, right? Versus, you know what? I one of the main reasons why I came to Cal. I'll just say this. One of, the, one of the main reasons why I came to Cal is because when I interviewed, I told them from the word go, I said, listen, I am perfectly comfortable where I am at Stanford. And this is a great opportunity. And I told them why I thought it was a really great opportunity, what I loved about the institution, the ways in which I would go about the work. And I told them, you know, I am the type of person because diversity has been my background. When I get into this leadership position, I want to know which institution is willing to experiment to say we are centering everything around diversity? Because when the personnel, oftentimes when the personnel gets tight, the time gets tight and the resources get low, diversity is what's compromised, right? And so I had to let them know that is absolutely not going to be the way in which I go about my work. Had I known that that was going to be a year before the George Floyd summer, had I known that was going to be the year before COVID and a disparate impact, I probably would have doubled down on that even more. But what I will say is through those experiences, it was not surprising at all um, when, when people saw the ways in which I showed up and my back stiffened around our commitment to doing equity and justice work. And that, that includes, I mean, I was, I was closing the office um, for Juneteenth before Juneteenth was a national holiday. Right. Just because it was the, the importance of recognizing um, the history of peoples. Right. And that was just one of the many cultural celebrations um, that we did. And that's not necessarily something that I had seen from a bunch of bosses in my time past, but it was some it, it, it is who I am. And it was really important that that was embraced in the interview, because now as I show up moving along, um, people are not surprised about what my priorities and what my goals are. So that, that that is a critical piece, I think, to showing up and the difference between kind of, the you know, again, those entry level positions versus stepping into a stepping into a leadership role. That's interesting in that point, because I could see myself and my journey through your response. Right. So I started to make the shift in the director in the vice president interview processes. And I also felt simultaneously, I started to become more confident and comfortable with who I was on unapologetically, but I hadn't, I hadn't got there yet ahead of those experiences. And so that just aligns with, with the journey that you just shared and reflecting of your experience as you transitioned to Cal and in the pieces that you highlighted, I think it also is a great segue to Hugh number three uh, yeah. and what you uh, in reference to your back stiffening and and those knowing how you were going to show up all the time and what was going to be a part of your foundation and your values. And so as we transition to number three, it is simultaneously building and dismantling centering diversity work in a place of whiteness. So again, as you've done so well thus far, here are the keys. Let's get busy. (laughs) 
Yeah, I think I think I think it's important to oftentimes we are asked, especially when we think about doing the diversity work, like either what do we need? Right. And it's like we need more staff or we need a community center or we need, you know, X, Y, Z. Right. And so there's a lot of focus on fundraising for those things and going out and getting those things and, and, and doing whatever you need to do across the campus to do that. Or there seems to be this like, you know, there's problematic practices that we must stop and we need to figure out what better ways to police those problematic practices and, and to to really tear those things down. And my point is, is that you have to do both at the same time, right? When you are remodeling your house, they don't start with the new furniture. They first have to tear down walls and they have to demolish things, right? And so if we're thinking about what it means to create liberating experiences, it's a combination of building new things and dismantling oppressive practices. You have to do them both at the same time because if you don't, Right. Then what ends up happening is you get a reaction that your efforts are performative. Right. So let's say all you do is you go and you build. You go and you build all these new things. You have all these new initiatives, but the experiences have not necessarily changed. Right. The oppressive practices or the really, really bad, outdated, archaic traditions have not changed. Right. Then 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 the way that that's received oftentimes from those communities is performative band-aids over an over an experience. Right. On the reverse, if all you do is dismantle and tear down, then your entire equity agenda is a destructionist agenda. And that becomes very hard to push at an institution that is built to serve multiple constituencies. Right. And so it has to be a combination of kind of build and destroy um, at the same time. And, and in order to really center the diversity work in institutions of whiteness, that means sometimes, hey, we're going to have to challenge a tradition that we've had for a really long time that people have believed are colorblind or is colorblind, but is in fact not colorblind whatsoever. Whether that is lottery systems to choose your housing, right? Whether that is thinking about resources that are given to certain academic areas, but not to others. Whether that is the ability for you to have community service uh, or community oriented spaces on your campus, you can't just build a community oriented space on campus and not try to address some of the detrimental experiences of that community that you're now trying to prop up. You have to do both um, in order to really sustain any true growth. And then again, when you think about passing that baton to someone else, right? The, the thought of, hey, it might be, you know what, we've seeded the money and we, we have, we, we are we are 95% of the way there to our new, you know, Black Student Service Center. Great. And I want to let you know that we got rid of these two problematic faculty and we also got rid of this problematic practice at the same time. So while those things aren't gone, we're still not there yet, right? But at least we've started to cut some of these experiences that have that have lived on for, for years, right? And so I think that that is... That is really, really, really important. And, and I, 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 again, I reflect to my time, actually, when I was at Stanford for this one. One of the big things that we did um, at Stanford, we were really interested in, like, what does it mean for us to actively attract and go for diversity? And it was one of those conversations where we recognized there is not a community in the country where we would stand in front of a group or an audience and say, most of you are going to be admitted. The acceptance rate was just too low for us to ever say something like that. It would be irresponsible and just untrue, 
right? And so given that, we started, I started to ask questions about like our, our outreach strategy. And, 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 you know, these are things that are, that, are, that are familiar to everyone in the field. What is a feeder school? Right. So if a feeder school is a school that sends us pretty much almost their entire senior class. Right. Which at Stanford, there are many, as you could probably imagine, it's a it's a desirable place. Right. But like, is that what we're looking for? And, and if we're talking about spending time and money to go and reach out to students, do we need to spend time and money at a school that's sending us their entire senior class? Or do we want to go and find those schools that don't know much about us? that we are interested in growing the representation from those areas. And so what that meant for us was when it came to doing some of our group travel, we did a lot of group travel that was specifically geared towards um, college counselors. We did that with very different types of schools. We were doing it with the Ivies. They still, I, I think they still are doing some group travel with Ivies, but we were doing really dynamic group travel with a variety of schools. There'd be a women's college there. There would be a small private. There'd be a public flagship there. And getting them in front of counselors was critically important. Or another, or another instance is when we were doing our counselor programs, rather than doing counselor programs in these big ballrooms, right? In these big expensive ballrooms in across the country, who do we want to be there? And if we would like to see more low SDS or more public schools there, perhaps we need to pick more centralized locations. And, and if we want people to actually meet us, if we want people to meet us where we are and we want to meet them where they are, do we need a ballroom to do that? And so instead, we started doing a lot of our counselor programs in high schools, Working with high schools and saying, you know what, let's if, if we can if we can get a partner to help us, um, you know, open their school on a Saturday, we can pay for food, parking, whatever the other additional costs are, right? For us to have a very real conversation, right? And I need to shout out, I believe it's Augsburg University in in, in Minnesota. Um, at the time, I, I had a colleague there um, who brought me to Minnesota, and I sat on a panel of counselors, and it was. It was Stanford, it was St. Scholastica Boarding School, it was Augsburg University, it was University of Wisconsin, University of Minnesota Duluth, all of these campuses, right? We were the only Ivy in the room. We had 65 counselors in Duluth, Minnesota. We, Stanford, Princeton, if we all tried to do that, we would have never gotten that type of crowd. And the reason is because, rightfully so, a lot of those counselors would say, My, students like mine don't go to schools like that. Okay, but the fact that we were able to get into that room and we were not the draw, I was able to demystify the Ivy League experience for a lot of counselors in that space to talk about what does it mean to meet full demonstrated need, right? What The fact that you don't need perfect SATs and straight A's to get into our institution. We were able to have a, a dynamic conversation while also recognizing we're not the best school for everyone, right? There's other schools here that are much more accessible. There are other schools that are that are that are much um, uh, more affordable if you're a middle income or an upper middle income student, right? So, so again, having that opportunity to complexify the conversation, which it deserves, by the way, it deserves to be a, a diverse and complex conversation on college-going culture. Those are some of the things that we were able um, to do. And so, again, kind of going back to what does it mean to build something new? Right. While also dismantling and, and, and demystifying the old ways in which people might think about your institution are important. And it's not just something for, you know, your smaller or lesser known institutions, but all institutions really need to engage in that work because there's so much chatter around our institutions that is not generated by us. That if we don't if we don't get out there, then we're allowing somebody else to, to really narrate who we are and who we're seeking. Wow. Wow. That's. That's a word um, in terms of, of reflecting on that piece and also 
demystifying part was also something that stood out to me as well in the way you explained that. So, so for our audience, listen, we've been able to walk through code switching to switching the code. We've been able to walk through uh, understanding your allies, your accomplices, and your adversaries. And lastly, uh, we've been able to talk about the simultaneous work of building and dismantling while centering the diversity work within the the complexities of whiteness in our spaces. And so uh, I want to thank you for walking us through that. And now that we've walked through the hues and, and our time is winding down together, um, yeah. the question that I have for you and that I ask all of our, our guests is, is have you either a more recently been exposed to a new framework, a new philosophy, a new theme within the leadership lexicon? Uh, or is there something that you would feel comfortable sharing with uh, our, our audience in terms of, you know, maybe an area that you've continuously continued to work on as a leader in this space, Femi, but but you feel like you haven't quite made it yet. You're, you're still a work in progress. Yeah, I think the, the greatest kind of, I think, framework and thing that I'm working on is this notion of public-private partnerships um, and, and how important that really, that really is. I, one of the things that I would say that one of the skill sets that I've really tooled up on since being in this role has been fundraising. And what, and what does it mean to, to really work with, work with donors? And, and a lot of that is how strong is your narrative creation, right? Again, your ability to, 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 to humanize um, your work. When it comes to working with donors, oftentimes it's around trying to figure out what's the narrative and the stories around segments of my population and and how well do I know that, not just from an admissions perspective, but from a student success perspective. And I think that that has been um, really, really important and 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 really eye opening to me. Um, something that I would not have guessed. Um, you know, again, the you know the misperceptions is that when you are not in leadership, there's this belief that leadership is just sitting on a bag of money. Um, and that's not true. <laughs> it's not true at all. Uh, and so, and and you want to keep keep the work keep the work moving. And and so, as somebody who I, I every time I, I hear no when it comes to fighting for again, kind of fighting for this work, I don't hear no. I hear that's not the way, right? So I have to find another way. And so so for me, but really really understanding what it means to engage with donors has been a major major growth edge for me. Um, again, also thinking about what that looks like outside of scholarships, right? And so how do you raise funds for for your basic needs center or for your career service center? I will also say the paradigm, the biggest paradigm that I would say that I have learned in this role is what it means to be an institutional agent, right? And so an institutional agent is, and it's grounded in some research that I can't quote right now, um, but being an institutional agent has everything to do with like recognizing what my role is in different relationships with people across campus. Sometimes my role is going to be the bullhorn and to let everybody know this group over here is doing amazing work. Our students really love it and appreciate it. And if there's any way that we can scale that, I would strongly support us figuring that out or scaling that. Sometimes it might be because I'm in so many spaces, you know, again, I hear this person wants to work on this issue, but I also hear that somebody else once is is already working on this issue. So how can I be a connector? Like literally all, all my job is to do is to be a connector because enrollment can be a conduit for many conversations. Um, in other places, it might be, you know, my, my job is to, is to, again, be an accomplice and get in the weeds and say, you know, this group or this, this organization is doing really, really, really dynamic work. 
how can we figure that out? And so, so for me, this, this notion of what it means to be an institutional agent, um, sometimes I might need to be a, a, um, a cultural advisor, right? And that means, hey, a dean or somebody might have sent a message out and they're getting a lot of flack from it and they don't understand because they were well-intentioned. Okay, well, let me have a conversation with you about why that landed differently than you might have thought, right? And so again, it's not my job to do that, but that's the that's what the relationship calls for and dictates. And so me understanding um, that has been really, really eye-opening because I would have thought that the only time people wanted to kind of talk to me was around specifics around my work, but it's not. We, we you know, when we talk about shaping a class and shaping shaping an organization, we're also talking about shaping, you know, institutional culture from the ground up. And so um, there is always going to be kind of reflection points and opportunities uh, for us to have greater engagement in those. And so that has been my greater, probably my 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 greatest learning curve, um, and and something that I've really really embraced. I've gotten good at some parts of it. I'm still I'm still working on a, on, on other parts of it. Um, and I'm excited, kind of coming off of COVID, having more in person meetings, able to kind of have that walk to the meeting and after the meeting to really um, establish some better relationships and, and understand what my role might be. It's it's interesting that we that we we close there because what you just did was symbolize what leadership means because leadership goes beyond the job title. It goes beyond job responsibilities. Absolutely. Uh, people are attracted to leadership, uh, service-oriented leadership, thought leadership, and might I say flexible leadership. And, yeah. and, and two, the other reason why I think it's, it's an amazing close is you just model what the reference to this podcast is in terms of understanding how to flex different cues depending on the situation and depending on who you're engaging with. And so without any cue, you just walk through what that means and how you show up in that way for the different constituencies that you're engaging with, depending on the situation, depending on the task at hand. And so I, I just think that's an amazing close. You know, I believe in um, extending flowers where they're needed, man. And so here's a bouquet for you and whatever flower you like. I'm just grateful to share this space with you. Uh, I'm grateful to be able to look up to you in our space and in our profession. Uh, and also, separately from this, we'll be picking up the phone to engage you on the fundraising pieces. That's definitely an area of opportunity that I, I would love to be able to, to, to grow in and develop in over time. Uh, but I wanted to extend the flowers to you, and I can't wait to share this conversation with the world. Hey, DJ, no, I, I greatly appreciate it. You're one of the most well-read brothers in the field. You have committed yourself to not just being a teacher, but a student of the game. So I greatly, greatly appreciate it. And um, I've honestly just been, it's been an honor to rise with you. Like we've both been kind of on our way up together. So um, it really has been an, an honor, brother. So thank you for the invitation and thank you for the opportunity. And, and an opportunity for us to, to launch those coming behind us even further uh, in their journeys beyond where we may reach. So absolutely. To our guests, as you transition to your work, home from work, as you head into lunch or you're transitioning between meetings, as you transition into professional development time you may have for yourself each day or each week, or as you transition between work and the time for yourself or your loved ones, let's reflect on and consider incorporating the hues in our lives that we learned about today. Thanks for tuning in to the Hues of Leadership podcast. And remember to ask yourself, what hues will I use today and which will I seek to further develop? Thank you.